Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Harm Bondel's with us um, with Unicredit. Harm, let me start with the original paper that I saw from you a million years ago where you looked at Saudi Arabia and the dynamics of oil. I know it's off your remit now at Unicredit, but Harm Bondel's on oil. Is, is there a chance we could revisit those shockingly low prices of a number of quarters ago? Well, I think after the price movements that we have seen over the past, I would say, one and a half years or so, we cannot rule out anything. <laughs> I think everybody who says who has a very <coughs> strong conviction to know where oil prices yeah, exactly. six months ago, it's, uh, yeah. well, I would doubt that. Um, but, I mean, our baseline is that we don't go down there, um, also because... Um, we have seen adjustments on the supply side, also in, including in the U.S., but also on the on the demand side. All the worries about glo- a kind of a global growth recession—they have faded. They are not completely mm-hmm. away, have not gone away completely. But I think there's a little bit more optimism that that growth, global growth, is holding up, which would support demand. So I think right. we are not going down as much to where we have been a few months yeah, ago. And I'd really recommend, folks, for those of you that care about oil, Phil Verliger's interview a number of days ago, look for that on the iTunes podcast we're doing, was really an important interview. Verliger was heated about the uh, the overestimation of what demand will be. He says demand growth uh, will maybe come in a little bit tepid, to say the least. Explain to us, as George Concalves did earlier, why is BOJ such a big deal versus what is basically a dead Fed meeting? Well, the, de- the Fed meeting is, is dead because we kind of think we have a good idea what they do, namely nothing, <laughs> including not many changes in the statement. And on the Bank of Japan side, there is, well, there is a lot of expectations that they try to do more. They try to add stimulus. There's been talk about this helicopter money, even though the interview now that we know is now pretty old. Right. And then if they do something, the question is, how is the market reacting, right? Because we have seen a couple of months ago, the Bank of Japan stimulated and the yen still got stronger. So that would then add to the view that central banks are getting increasingly powerless when it comes to weaken the currency. Are they increasingly powerless? I think they this are, is the heart of the question. I think they are increasingly powerless because if, if you try to, <coughs> to weaken your currency, I think some central banks have now basically hit the limit um, because rates are already so low, so they cannot mu- do much more to, to weaken what, the currency further. You, you're in a conference called Unicredit with your colleague Eric Nielsen, one of the great Euro-optimists. You have your wonderful European and German heritage. When you, when you look at how we've boxed ourselves into negative rates, first question, are those negative rates transmitting into the economy or are they just a fiction of institutional banking? Um, so certainly they are not helpful for the banking sector. The transmission channel through lower rates themselves, it's, I think it's limited because banks have problems to pass them on. That's why they, right. are, they are hurting banks more than they, they help the economy. I think what they did is... Um, Coming back to the to the previous question, I think they help to further weaken the euro to some extent, but that's you know because we are now at these negative rates. There's not much more that the ECB could, for example, do. So we, before we were talking about the Bank of Japan, but I think it's true for the ECB as well. So there's not much they could do further to to weaken the yen or the euro. How do you respond to the assumption our bankers will buy equity shares? I think it's not going to happen. 
<laughs> then what will Mr. Draghi do? This is a key question. No, I think with the, um, the previous broadening of, this, of the, the, the range of assets he can buy, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff, but it's all on the bond side. It's all on the bond it's side. It's all on the bond the, side. The equity were okay. I'll go. Let's go back to the United States economy uh, right now. What is your call 12 months forward on GDP? Let's just frame here uh, from the caution, I think, of Ellen Zentner at Morgan Stanley out to outright optimist, way 3% plus economy. Where's harm bundles? No, I think cruising speed is 2% right now. So if you ask. 2.0. 2.0. Not so much. No. That doesn't get it done. I mean, that's an animal spirit, a nominal GDP. True. It just doesn't get it done. Why are we seeing DuPont? UTX, Eli Lilly show good corporate earnings. Um, well, I think on a quarterly basis, earnings tend to be heavily correlated with quarterly GDP growth. So you just asked me about the cruising speed 12 months out, but we, I think that second quarter GDP growth was pretty decent. We get it later this week. Right. So and I think that helped quite a few companies to report pretty solid earnings uh, in the second quarter. Well, within that is the idea, and of course the Fed has to uh, look forward. If they're looking into a harm bundles economy at 2.0%, um, if, if we call that the middle ground, and if we fold in the belief that it's a new terminal rate, they don't have much wiggle room given this odd meeting, the next odd meeting, then the really odd November 2nd meeting, yes. and then you get to year end. Yeah, but let me just say uh, that it's not a about the absolute GDP growth. It's about where GDP growth is relative to potential. Because the Fed is looking okay, at... Okay, I'll go with that. They look at... Okay. So in that world, I think the output gap is basically closed because in the past, um, the many institutions have vastly overstated potential GDP growth for the U.S. I think they are all revising down these numbers with the result, is, uh, with the result that the output gap is basically closed for the U.S. Right? And we see the parallel picture on the labor market with the mm. unemployment rate basically at its Nairu, plus, minus, you know, wherever the Nairu is, but it's somewhere around 45 to 5%, and that's where the actual unemployment rate is. So in that world, the Fed's target rate should be at its neutral rate, right? So and that's the big question now. Where is the neutral rate, really? I mean, we're opening and up. And the answer is it's a lot lower. Michael McKee, <laughs> good morning. Mike, is it a dead meeting or a live meeting tomorrow? Oh, it's a dead meeting tomorrow. You don't eat oysters in a month that doesn't have an R in it, and the Fed doesn't raise rates oh, what is this, in oysters? a month without a press conference. <clears throat> so, I mean, those are the those are the things that we know. Um, but it, it, harm rates is an interesting question about the output gap closing. But then, where is inflation? I mean, it is not at a level, and it is not accelerating at a pace where the Fed is going to feel obligated to move. No, agreed. Um, so. First of all, let me answer your question. I think underlying inflation in the U.S. is around 2%. It is higher than what the core PCE deflator tells us. The core PCE, I mean, there are so many measures of underlying inflation out there, and they are, all, they are not published by, by somebody who wants the Fed to raise rates, but they are all published by regional Fed banks who said that their underlying inflation measure is a better predictor of medium-term inflation so, and, and most of these measures are around 2%. The odd man out is the core PCE deflator, which happens to be the Fed's preferred <clears> measure. <throat> and the Fed kind of, the Federal Reserve Board, let me say, um, kind of ignores all the other measures and keeps telling us that inflation is too low, right? So at 1.6, 1.7%. Um, and that's why they say we don't have to raise rates right now. But um, first of all, the idea that the Fed only starts to raise rates when, when it has met all its mandates is wrong. 
and it never did so in the past in, because we all know monetary policy works with a lag. So you start a bit earlier. When you're on your way to meet your mandates, you start raising rates. And as I said, I think on the, on the uh, unemployment rate side, the full employment mandate is basically met. And on the inflation uh, oh. mandate, we are not far away. And still <clears throat> the interest rate is at half a percent, and that's too low. Michael McKee and Tom Keen fired up about the Fed meeting tomorrow. What are we going to do there, Mike? It's a dead meeting, but actually there's a lot to talk about. Discuss that oddity. Um, Tom, you do have to come to work tomorrow. I know what you're really asking here. Uh, the, the whole question is, is market pricing at this point, because we know the Fed isn't going to do anything. We know they'll probably acknowledge a little bit stronger economy. But how much emphasis do they put on that, and how much do they want the markets to move? That's kind of the bottom line. I would suspect, given her history, Janet Yellen isn't in any hurry yeah. to push things around. Harm Badholz is chief U.S. economist at Unicredit, and um, Harm, am I full of it? Or <laughs> would you agree that Janet Yellen is likely to come out on the cautious end tomorrow? No, I think I think you you are right. Uh, Yellen Yellen has been very cautious in her, in her latest speech, highlighting all the uncertainties around the outlook. So, uh, a month of good data is not enough to um, to change Janet Yellen's mind. So, I think they their statement will indeed emphasize the better data, but leave all the policy relevant paragraphs unchanged, which means the Fed does not want to send any strong signals about. September rate hike or something. So I think they are, if they look at the futures, the futures have moved quite a bit, particularly if you look at the December rate hike odds, they are basically 50%. I think the Fed is okay with that. Um, I think that is their baseline right now. That's also our baseline. And then they will keep emphasizing that it is uh, data dependent. So if the numbers are coming in okay-ish um, and the Brexit fallout is manageable and all that, then I think we see the rate hike in, in December. And, and But the Fed doesn't have to do anything to change market expectations at this point, so they're okay with them. Tom mentioned earlier that the November's off the table because right before the election. Uh, November 2. We, <coughs> we've, been, we've, been, we've been asking everybody that comes in, when do the markets start pricing in one way or another the results of the election? Polls out show Donald Trump got a bounce out of his campaign. There's nothing more unreliable than a convention time period poll, but uh, it has started to worry some people. Uh, yeah, um, and, and certainly most European observers that I can tell you, so they still don't understand what's really going on, so they just follow these, the polls in disbelief. Um, I mean, I think the, the first question we have to ask, what is what are our markets doing when, you know, I when, I think when when Hillary Clinton is 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 maintaining the lead on the electoral votes, so she, and she looks like to win it, then it, it will be more of the same, I would say, and the market would probably be okay with that. But then the question is, what happens if 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 Donald Trump becomes president? Does it mean that all markets sell off, that the dollar weakens, or is it the other way around? So it's still, I think, it is debatable because my point is, if Mr. Trump still manages to pull it off, he has to sound, in my view. A European view still. He has to sound <laughs> a bit more presidential, I think, than he did in the past. Um, and maybe markets then at the end of the day may not be as scared as we would think at this point. Let me ask you from the European point of view, did um, Marine Le Pen sound more presidential after <laughs> she won the first round in the last uh, French election? Did uh, Beppe Grillo sound more presidential as the, uh, as the three star, five-star movement McKee started showing gaining? showing off the European uh, politics now. I mean... Uh, these people campaign on something and then they tend to stick with it, don't they? But my point is, I don't think Mr. Trump wins the election if he sticks to what he said. It's, it, I don't think the, the he gets enough voters. So it was good enough to win the primaries, in my view, but it's not enough to win the overall election. So, so that's why I said if he wants to 
convince some of the undecided voters, maybe even some independents, I think we need to hear a little bit of a different tone. Where are we? And we talked earlier of 2.0%. The buoyancy of the consumer. Mike and I have a vision of two zip codes in New York City. And Mike, our vision is basically a lot of empty retail shops. Yeah, what although is the state of the I, I have to point this uh, out, Tom. Uh, just a short time ago, I'm, I'm looking forward in my uh, email here. I got a note from the National Retail Federation. What do they say? They're upgrading their 2016 economic forecast, expecting retail sales to grow 3.4 percent. They had forecast earlier 3.1 percent. So even they are starting to get more optimistic, and you never see retailers optimistic. It's always yeah. bad weather. Or, you know, I, I think I think the what we have to Keep in mind is that the retail um, landscape is changing. As you know, like several decades ago, when when the Walmart and Target came in, all the mom and pop shops closed. And I think the next step is right now that several retailers close, and it's all online business, right? So that's why we have this conundrum um, between strong overall data and empty retail spaces. So the people are still shopping, but not in the stores, but online. So I. I Okay. I think that could explain it. I, I really think the consumer is, is in very good shape. And, well, it's it's basically the only the only sector that has been pulling um, the economy uh, in the second mm-hmm. quarter. Right? Thank you so much. Herm Bondles with Unicredit. We're talking about earnings this morning. We will be talking about earnings again tomorrow morning when we get the numbers from Apple. Uh, everybody's favorite company. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Gene Munster covers it for Piper Jaffray. Uh, Gene, what are you expecting from Tim Cook and company when they report after the bell today? Well, we're expecting that the June results are essentially going to be in line. The magical number there is how many iPhones they're going to sell, and we're expecting 40 million. And I can say that the buy side, which is more important than our expectations for the September quarter, calls for numbers to be for them to guide revenue about 5% below where the street's at. And this kind of continuation of the theme that there's difficult comps. So that's the the setup for tonight. Most eyes are focused on what's coming versus uh, the the September guide, but that's the setup. Yeah, that's always a question with Apple. You get um, the the current quarter for them, um, the second quarter of the year, uh, does anybody pay a whole lot of attention to it, given that you go into the third and fourth quarters with generally a product refresh that changes everything? Yeah, it's all about the product refresh. It's all about the seven this time. You get essentially two shots on goal with the seven and then the anniversary phone next year. And so the setup is a little bit different than you typically have. Ah, yes. the anniversary. Can you believe it's been only 10 years since this thing basically changed everybody's life? Yeah, it's it's hard to look back. At the time, it was the first really touchscreen phone, and people really lambasted it and said, we got to bring the keyboards back, but obviously now the, the standard is for the touchscreen. And I think it begs a, a question at the 10-year mark is, what's the future of the smartphone? And I would just... Uh, uh, wager uh, a prediction that there's still some room left in terms of the innovation of the phone, even after 10 years. I think a lot of people feel that that's played itself out. But specifically, there's technology now that is going to allow your smartphone to essentially flip over and become a small tablet and then flip back and become a small uh, a smartphone. And uh, that should be kind of another leg to the smartphone growth over the next uh, few years. Hard to say when Apple's going to enter into that piece, but 
I think that there is still room for optimism around the category. Well, for the past year, well, year to date, put it that way, uh, Apple shares are down about 8%. They're down about 15% over the last two years. Any of these things that are coming to market, the, any product refresh going to change that trend? I think so. And this gets back to this concept of having two shots on goal. And basically what that means is that if you invest in Apple today, you have an opportunity that the iPhone 7 that comes out this fall is a little bit better than expected. If it's in line or slightly below, that's essentially going to push demand to the phone that's going to come out in 2017, and that would be your second shot on goal. And the reason why that that's, uh, we think, going to be impactful to the stock is that typically when you go into a product cycle, you really have one product that you're, you're playing for as an investor. In this case, you really have two products that you're playing for because the phone that comes out next year is probably going to be a slightly different look to it and that tends to be good for sales and investors tend to like it when they change the form factor yeah diamond encrusted or something like that for anniversary uh, probably one version of it but the, the other part is that it's going to have a screen that wraps around a little bit there's some android phones like this today and and maybe uh the screen even though the form factor is about the same the screen size might be slightly bigger because it'll make that home button smaller so when you put it up against the existing iphones it will look more futuristic Gene Munster, thank you very much from Piper Jaffrey. Well, as part of our continuing effort to bring you the latest real estate porn, uh, we talked single-family housing with uh, Mitch Rochelle just a short time ago. Jonathan Miller comes in now from Miller Samuel, um, our old friend and the man who keeps track of uh, what it costs to live in New York City. And I guess the answer is he, if you have to ask, old, you can't afford it. He's not an old friend. <laughs> he didn't, you know, the, 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 the thing I've got in the didn't. 60th floor of 157, where was John Miller to tell me to sell the dog? <laughs> All this animosity. <laughs> <clears throat> So how's how we doing, as uh, former mayor used to say here? Right. So so if you look at New York City Metro, what we're seeing now over the last year is the housing market, whether we're talking about rentals or purchases, um, has reached some sort of affordability threshold. One of the most incredible phenomenon in housing, at least in this metro area, is that sales activity in the outlying suburbs are is at multi-decade highs. So we're we're talking about the surrounding counties. And uh, a big part of that is people being priced out of the city uh, and looking for and actually transitioning from renters to buyers. Now, before you start tweeting and emailing and complaining, I'm getting to your questions, those of you in San Francisco and Boston and Washington, D.C. How does this compare to San Francisco and Boston and Washington, D.C.? San Francisco's had this problem for a while. Right. So so I, I think the, the universal pattern in most of the, the big urban markets, L.A., uh, Boston, uh, New York, uh, D.C., is this uh, soft-at-the-top phenomenon. So what we're seeing is over the last four or five years, it's all been about luxury residential, super talls, uh, well, maybe not in San Francisco, but yeah. uh, but uh, a tremendous amount of focus on that, um, almost a singular focus on that in terms of development, whether it's rental or condo. And what we're seeing now is that, that those markets are largely, uh, I don't want to say dormant, but very quiet in terms of transactions. 
and uh, what we're seeing is a uh, a huge surge in activity in the entry and middle markets. So uh, the spotlight is shifting off of the top and and towards uh, the. But are other. they building any entry level stuff? Uh, no. Well, that's that's part of the problem. the 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 development community is reorientating um, as best they can, but land prices are still. Uh, relatively high, and construction costs are high, so it makes it very difficult. Will it filter down? We so, have this in Mitch Rochelle. You've been brilliant on stuff Mike McKee and I could never dream of. Is it going <laughs> to filter down to the sub and the sub-sub and the sub-sub-sub luxury? <laughs> So I, I think uh, the word contagion comes to mind. You know, do, does does the slowdown in um, in the high end uh, translate to weaker prices uh, elsewhere? And at least so far, that doesn't seem to be the case uh, uh, in the rental market. Uh, a tad, but in the in the high end new development market, condo market, it is not the case. Only because, at least at this point, because the the distance between the existing market and the new product came on that came on is much farther apart. So, uh, a seven million dollar two bedroom doesn't, uh, and and if it drops twenty percent, it doesn't affect a four million dollar property or a three million or a two million dollar property. Okay, but to back up here, a three million dollar property, who is buying that? <laughs> This is this is uh, uh, what is driving the market. I mean, in, in high end markets like New York, that's the average sale price, uh, two million bucks. Yeah, but that's a good question that Tom asks. I mean, if we start pricing people out, who's going to be in the? I mean, if if that's your entry level, uh, who's who's going to get in? Well, it, it's not the entry level, but that's the focus. That's been the foc- primary primary focus on new development, and it's going to take a while to shift. I don't, I don't see a contagion. I do see. Look, what's different now is that the underlying economic conditions are pretty good. Uh, uh, j- job growth, low unemployment, um, uh, relative to say uh, in the uh, the outbreak of the financial crisis. So I think things are in a better place. It's also a lot, not a lot of emphasis on uh, uh, high leverage in purchasing. So, so I just think this is a, a different scenario. I don't see the contagion. I see this as much more of a segmented market where we have weak parts versus uh, strong parts. Well, are there enough people left who can, who can and would buy a $3 million apartment? In other words, for them, that's the best they can do? Because I would imagine that there's an awful lot of people who could probably afford more, and then that may not be good enough, but there may not be people below that who are aiming higher. Well, this is the whole process we're going through right now where people are going farther from the central central business district. They're moving farther out, um, and that's this phenomenon in the suburbs we're seeing right now where, you know, think of uh, think of a city as a, you know, a, a, a bucket of water that's spilling over at the sides. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, we're seeing a lot of urban growth since uh, 08, and uh, now the suburbs are reaping the benefits. We're talking with Jonathan Miller, head of uh, Miller Samuel, the uh, appraisal company, about prices. Uh, one interesting thing John said to me, Tom, was uh, the new urbanism seems to be failing. What did you mean by that? Well, it's not that new urbanism is failing. It it actually is wildly successful. But, that, successful, makes, but yeah. that makes it more expensive to live in the city. And so 
the dynamic of sub- suburbs competing with um, um, the city is uh, rekindled. And uh, but when people are buying in the suburbs now, they're they're looking for communities that are closer to the city that have a lot of walkability, uh, as opposed to you know being sort of out in the exurbs, way out and you know in the middle of nowhere. So there's a little bit of that. And the other thing we're seeing in the region is we're seeing an uptick in condominium development in the suburbs, uh, skewed a little bit higher than the product that's been done. If you think about it, people coming from the city are used to the condo form of ownership and not mowing the lawn. Well, you you and I were just talking about how we both lived in the Washington, D.C. area. You see a lot of mini cities, mini urban areas around the Washington, D.C. metro area. We're going to see that in a lot of these other cities? Yeah, I I think you you probably will see that pattern if it continues um we're not writing off new york but but just oh go ahead please no no, i'm just saying not writing off new york i'm not gloom and doom at all i just it's not a zero-sum game that that what's happening in the suburbs is a reaction to people being priced out in the city what i see in cities is not 80 story mega luxury 20 million and up 10 million forget about that it's five and six and seven story smaller skyscrapers all residential yes they're everywhere yes they're going up like mushrooms that screams to me over capacity at some point am i wrong well you know the 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 the, the worst worrisome trend of of the sort of mid-rise buildings that you subscribe uh, that you're talking about is that they have the same pricing as the super talls but they don't have the view so the concern is that this product is you know that we're, we're seeing too much at the high end. This is the, a recurring theme. It's not that we're building too much. We're just building, we're skewing way too high like, like towards Boston the high end. Like Boston has a Queens. San Francisco has a Queens. Yes. Nobody ever wants to talk about it. It doesn't make the TV shows. We have a Queens. Yes. Where's Queens in 10 years? Because well, there's que- no place else to go. Well, Queens already is seeing uh, record housing prices and uh, they're they're uh, being impacted directly from the spillover from Brooklyn, which uh, benefited from this uh, development boom. So what we have this this continued outward radial push in uh, urban markets. Um, and I think, you know, everybody wrote off the suburban markets a little prematurely. Um, and that was back to my comment about new urbis, urbanism and the focus on walkable cities. It's fantastic. Great phenomenon, except for the part that uh, housing supply is relatively inelastic. And when you have people come into the city, attract to the city, um, prices rise. And that's the, that's where we're at right now. Weren't we supposed to see all kinds of apartment of seeing all kinds of apartments being built to absorb all the people who now wanted to be renters? Uh, yes, but the product being built doesn't match what the demand is. The product being built is skewed towards the high end. And uh, very little in the middle is being That created. kind of runs against the old uh, economic view that market's clear, that you know people recognize a demand and fill it. Yes. Um, the, the thing you have to think about is that the, the high-end product that came on the market wasn't a product of a local economic condition. It was a global phenomenon uh, that we saw in every major city in the world, just about, uh, probably exaggerating, but it was a global pro- – it wasn't born out of local economics, and that's mm-hmm. what's changing right now. Okay. I want to review this. $3 million unit. You're telling me somebody puts down $800,000 in a big fat mortgage. That describes X percent of our audience, like small part. Let's say it's a small part. 
everybody else is going to drive an hour and a half commute. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Uh, you know, it certainly is an option, but I but I think the people that are drive being driven outward are the people paying less than that because that's where I agree. The, that's where the tightness is. So I think. So what's the public policy to fix this? I mean, Mayor De Blasio, Mayor Walsh, every other mayor in the city, including London, there's no other topic. Right. I mean, to, to begin with, Mike, it's appalling. It's not even discussed at the presidential level. You're truly one of the world's experts on this. What's the policy prescription for the reality of 80% of the Bloomberg surveillance audience? Well, I, I think the, the, the challenge is, and, and every administration is trying to solve this around the country, is uh, creating affordable housing. And, and the word affordable in, in my use is really middle class, working class housing, not government subsidized. Um, and that can only be done through controls on land and land use. And there's so many uh, angles to this that I don't know that there is a clear path, at least at this point. No one has come mm -hmm. up with one. Let me ask a 50,000-foot question. Uh, Jane Jacobs wrote a famous book years ago that argued you need diversity in housing and in neighborhoods to keep a city vital. Yes. Uh, is New York City doomed? No, I, I, I don't think so. I, what, I see this right now in the current trajectory uh, – I think we were on the right path until about five, seven years ago. Um, what we what we're doing now is we're uh, what do you we're sterilizing, um, you know, making um, making the city less uh, diverse um, in its uh, housing stock and the people that can afford to live here. And that's ultimately a long, slow transition. I, I hope that we don't go that path because it took us forever to get to where we were five, ten years ago. Well, they were going to build a whole bunch of high-rises along West uh, 57th Street here in New York. We've got a couple up, uh, and then I read that the rest are being kind of postponed. Right. Uh, you're probably referring to 111 West 57th, which was uh, – that's the one that's uh, very narrow. I think it's the world's tallest, thinnest building, some designation like that. Um, and so they said they're not going to be marketing it for a year and wait to see what happens, um, although they've – as far as I've heard, indirectly, they've already sold a couple of units without any marketing. Mm -hmm. So so I think the way to think of this is, at least at the high end, is um, uh, when buildings, when developers negotiate price, units are selling. It isn't that there isn't any demand. It's that the demand um, or the pricing that was established in 2014, which was the peak pricing for this high-end market, uh, it's off 20 percent, uh, you know, 50, mm -hmm. 10, 30 percent, somewhere in that range. And when you adjust pricing to that, units do sell. Ten seconds. Where would you buy right now in New York? Um, I'd still buy downtown Soho, Tribeca. I love the big space. Why you can afford it. <laughs> He's such a hitter. John Miller with Miller Samuel. Read worldwide on real estate. Mike, ADB. ADB. All day breakfast. Ah. Which means it's time to talk to Sarah Senator, Sanford Bernstein, on food. San Sarah H. Senator, ADB. Sarah, have you ever had ADB? 
Of course. What uh, right-thinking American has not had um, a breakfast sandwich in the middle of the day? Do you go for the sausage burrito at 8 p.m.? I am. I'm not a sausage burrito. I'm. I'm a person. I'm. A, I'm a classicist. I like the McMuffin. I agree completely. Is this generating operating income for McDonald's? You know, it has been, uh, and I think it still is. But the momentum seems to have slowed a bit yeah. uh, from when they launched it. Well, take apart the numbers uh, for us. Uh, same store sales were down. They also complained of some uh, currency translation. Or is, is, are that, is that related, basically? Um, the, the same store sales in the U.S. had, had slowed, um, and that, I think that's that's always the big focus for investors is the U.S. because it's forty percent of McDonald's business. Um, there was a bit of a currency headwind, although I'll, I'll say not uh, not as uh, it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been given their uh, exposure to the pound. Uh, in particular. Um, so the real issue seems to just be that, that some of the momentum that they've had, uh, again, particularly in the U.S., has just dissipated a little bit. So we got uh, basically um, okay numbers, but the froth is off. The, the, the extra pickles have been left off. <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably the right uh, analogy for, for McDonald's. So that's what right. do they do next? In the past, when they did something like this, what would happen is they'd introduce some um, new variation on a food item to try to bump up sales. Is that no longer part of the strategy? Well, I, I think it is. Uh, you know, they're, they're talking about in the second half of the year, focus on the focus on adding more breakfast sandwich favorites. So um, yeah. up until yeah. now, um, the menu in different markets, you would have, uh, I believe, you know, McMuffins or biscuits, but not both. Um, now you'll have McGriddles, McMuffins, and biscuits, just a, a broader assortment. So okay. adding more offerings. And, Sarah, c- congratulations to your persistency on McDonald's. I mean, come on. In the last 10 years, 16.84% from all the gloom of a year and a half ago, it's had a 20% pop. I'm looking at free cash flow that's frankly <laughs> remarkably stable and even growing, isn't this a, is this a great turnaround? I mean, do you look at what the new management's done with ADB and the rest of it? Is this one of the great success stories of modern corporate history? Well, I think um, it's, clearly that, it's clear that the last turnaround was one of the great success stories of modern corporate history, the one that took over in, in 2003. And I think you know, what, what we would say is that the business was in worse shape then than it was okay. uh, now, uh, and they turned it around harder. Um, I think it's certainly credit where credit is due. Steve Easterbrook has done a remarkable job. To your point, the stock has moved uh, for a company of this size quite a bit. Yeah. His expectations went from being very dour <laughs> to the view that you know they can compete. Um, now, this quarter suggests that, yes, they can compete. Can they consistently um, dramatically exceed what's going on in the industry? That, I think, is, is a little more of an open now, question. What will they do with their balance sheet? I had somebody email me in a sophisticated CFA type, and, and he said, look, why doesn't Apple just do more debt? Apple's like 12% debt, whatever the number is. McDonald's, I see, with 17.5% debt, money's dirt cheap. I would say, suggest McDonald's has the greatest credit rating going. Do they have a use of cash play here where they take on more debt and deploy cash? 
Yeah, they they um, they've done some of that. So um, you know, returning thirty billion dollars to shareholders between you know dividends and uh, and repurchase. Yeah. You know, and so they they certainly have gone in that direction. Um, but I don't think we're going to see a whole lot more. I mean, one one thing to worth noting, they do have a lot of rental expense, so so they're a little bit more levered than than you might look optically at the balance sheet and and just see that. Um, but I think in general they've been pretty. Right. Um, pretty cautious about maintaining that very high investment grade um, rating, and they, they view that as something that is a boon to them and also boon yeah. to their franchisees. Let's go to the train wreck of the industry. Chipotle, give us an update here. The, the sales deleveraging, as you state in your report, is shocking. It, 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 I assume they're not turned around now. What's it going to take to right the ship? They are kind of the opposite of McDonald's. They yes. are on the other side, though, of their of the sort of trough of their performance. So McDonald's appears to be just post-peak, and Chipotle appears to be post-trough. And the market likes things that are getting better, not things that are getting worse, which is why the stock was actually up. Chipotle stock was up, uh, you know, on the last quarterly report because things are improving, you know, slowly and maybe more slowly than certainly anybody would have expected seven months ago. Um, but they are getting better, and the chip tope loyalty program appears to be working. There's a, a sort of an economic indicator aspect to some of these restaurants' results because as the economy improves, people move upscale and uh, vice versa. Do we have any kind of movement underway that would suggest one way or the other how the economy is doing overall? You know, we're not seeing. Uh, you know, we're not seeing anybody really do particularly well. You know, if there were trade down, you might expect McDonald's to do a little bit better than than this quarter would suggest. Um, you know, Taco Bell had a pretty soft comp in the quarter as well. They're they're typically you know value is right you know right down their fairway so to speak. Um, you know, nobody's really seems to be holding up all that well. Although, you know, you could look at the pizza guys, they, they actually seem to be the best. Um, so I think it's more about, you know, uh, whether people are really, you know, going out um, to eat. I think they are looking for value. Pizza is a good value. Uh, so I just think everybody's hunkered down a little bit, whether yeah. it's because of uncertainty around the political situation. Um, it's the fact that your grocery store pricing is so low now because food prices have come down. So people are dining in a little bit more. I think there are a lot of factors. Right. But the consumer's just cautious. Sarah, thanks so much. You and I, a sausage burrito, ADB, soon. Sarah Senator with Birdsteed. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.